the Women of Color STEM Conference presents Inclusion in Diversity and Inclusion, Inclusive Enhancement by Digital Transformation, a professional development seminar featuring CEO of Blue Sky Consulting, Jim Pagan. An effective diversity and inclusion strategy needs time to grow and can be helped by digital analytics. HR can partner with other departments to help this growth. Join us as we discuss the future of HR and data analytics. Without further ado, the Women of Color STEM Conference presents Inclusion in Diversity and Inclusion, Inclusive Enhancement by Digital Transformation, featuring Jem Pagan. Good afternoon. We were trying to wait to give people a chance to kind of come together and all that good stuff. Uh, I turned my phone off, so you guys have to keep me honest. <laughs> if we get too bored, we can bring it in. So let me go over the good housekeeping uh, rules. Please get your, have your badges scanned when you leave so that you can get credit for attending the seminar. Or you may have scanned you on the way in. And of course, if you could uh, be so kind as to tweet and maybe uh, push something out on Facebook, this helps with the, uh, with the message about the conference and so forth. And we're going to jump right in. So today we're going to talk about inclusion. I know a lot of times we hear diversity and inclusion. Uh, having been in the diversity and inclusion for so long, I tend to not like to do that because they're two separate programs, two separate initiatives. And when you really get in, involved in diversity and inclusion, you realize that uh, a diversity program does not automatically assume that inclusion is involved. And if you don't have a dual track as far as strategy and the way you're gonna me measure it in all the metrics, you can sometimes really build out a great diversity program, but fail at inclusion. And if you fail at inclusion, you really have failed overall. And we'll talk about what that means. But let me uh, back up and just introduce myself, Jim Pagan. And today we're going to focus on the I. And we're going to try to answer some of these questions. I'm not going to read all the questions. I tend not to do that when I speak. Uh, I, I think it's redundant. But as, as you peruse those questions, just take a moment to, to think about what and how you're addressing those today and what is the art of the possible uh, in this age of digital transformation. But overall, we're going to touch on diversity just to open up the bridgeway towards inclusion, to make sure we have a continuous or continuity uh, of thought between the two. So my this is my personal professional hypothesis. Diversity measures the presence of talent, and inclusion measures the effectiveness of that talent in the organization. Diversity focuses on bringing, oh, you can feel free to interrupt, you're good. You can take a picture. It'll be on slideshow and all that other stuff, so you'll be free. This is interactive. You have to interrupt me. I will not talk for an hour straight. <laughs> I need questions. I need feedback. And most importantly, if you disagree, I love that because I'm a, I'm a product of critical thinking, and you don't get to a level of thinking unless you're willing to hear an opposite or, or uh, a completely different opinion. So diversity really does focus on building out the presence of underserved and non-majority talent that we used to call minorities and so forth. But now we're just saying, hey, look, people of color, those who are underserved, those who are different as far as uh, 
their sexual orientation, uh, age, all of this falls underneath the diversity umbrella. It's not just a black and white and, and a yellow thing. It really is a full-fledged human experience thing. So if I have a diversity program, I'm really trying to push the numbers up. So I'm measuring my hiring demographics, and I'm trying to determine what percentage of my overall workforce is non-majority or non-conforming to what we call typical society uh, uh, demographics. Inclusion gets to work after that person has been hired. Because if you walk into a restaurant by yourself, it's a totally different experience than when you walk into a restaurant with a group or another person. Why? Because you already feel included in that atmosphere. But when you are alone, and I don't know of anyone who's been hired in a group, <laughs> and in our profession, we're all hired individually. So when you walk into an organization, if that organization has not prepared the right orientation for your particular needs, you may walk away with a terrible experience. You may feel left out. You may feel as if there is no pathway towards career development because no one's understanding how to really bring your talents to its full potential. Why? Because you have a different perspective. You come from different places. Your vernacular is different. The way you perceive things are different because you're diverse, which is a good thing. If we can find that diversity and then start to strategically mature it into the organization. But if anyone disagrees, I'll be happy, you know, to pause. Yes. And, and, you, and I don't know about you all, but I've noticed that there's very little being discussed on inclusion. It's like once you get them in the door, it's like job done. Measure those numbers. And we always see diversity numbers. They always come up. But inclusion, everyone goes, well, you know, well, we're working on it. Uh, we got to figure out how to poll the people and survey our, our. And a lot of times, assimilation is confused with inclusion. It happens all the time. So I wanted to uh, just share some brief uh, research with you. Uh, McKinsey's study uh, from 2018, uh, they polled 366 public organizations, and these are the big enterprises. And they revealed that, you know, if you have a strong diversity platform or strategy, you're, by av on average, outperforming a non-diversity focused organization by 35%. And that's in revenue, that's in bottom line numbers, because that's what really drives us at the end of the day to make changes happen. So we've proven that diversity in and of itself has a result. And when you look at you know, this particular stat, 
what I'm beginning to realize more and more is that, yes, we do have bottom line benefits from diversity. The question is, can we get that 35% up to 70? Is there a gap? Are we, are we maxing out on our diverse talent by just getting them through the door? Or does inclusion give us some hidden gems beyond just um, diversifying our workforce? Deloitte did a study this year, and uh, they really talked about what was happening as far as inclusion. So the first bullet is a diversity metric. The second one is an inclusion metric. So the second bullet really speaks to a survey on how included do I feel? And it's the exact opposite number. <laughs> the vast majority are like, I'm dealing with this once a month. That's a lot. Once a month. Because you got to realize that you know, whenever you go through a biased experience in the workforce, it, it's like going through a traumatic experience. Very similar to post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome where it lingers in your thought. It starts to distract you from what you're trying to accomplish in the, in the workplace. So it has a lingering negative effect when you know that I, am, I have to get used to feeling unappreciated. I have to kind of just like toughen up and not run to HR every time I feel like there's bias in the workplace because then I'll just be targeted as one of those, you know, <laughs> naysayers. So that's really difficult. Inclusion is difficult because it's a hidden, it's a personal metric that can be transformed into an organizational metric if it's done correctly. And then if you look at uh, the, uh, and this is where diversity and inclusion mix. If you look at the conversely stat, it's very interesting because 77% of those, of those same uh, recipients of the survey uh, above, they feel like their organization is doing something to foster inclusive activity, yet they're feeling like they're subject to bias. So overall, they're like, we, we're getting the corporate message. The organization is doing a great job of telling us that we're committed to inclusion. But my personal work experience is saying that Yes, you're doing it, but you're not really doing it well enough because you're putting a, a lot of focus on this at the executive level, at the corporate messaging level. But when it comes down to my experience, I'm still feeling like once a month I have to deal with this. Yeah, and at the end of presentation, I put all the attributions there so you can go read each one of these because they're very detailed, very detailed studies. <laughs> and they really get into a into the why and the where and sometimes the how. So let's make a case for inclusion. And I think we've defined inclusion. Everyone understands that inclusion is having a seat at the table, feeling like you are wanted at the table, feeling as if your talents are needed to help the organization. In other words, it's not a quota thing. It's not an affirmative action thing. It's a we need to get this done and we need diverse talent in order to get there. That's inclusion. So the benefit of inclusion is that it's not a minority thing. It's an entire workforce thing. So if I start to focus on inclusion, I'm actually opening up a strategy to focus on workforce productivity across my entire workforce. Why? Because the implementation of these programs are very, very critical to the bottom line of the organization. So now inclusion goes beyond how do the underrepresented feel in the workplace to 
how are you treating others, period? What are your guiding principles as professionals? And when you start to get into that sort of self-assessment, you're now bringing organizational change into the culture of the organization. It's like organizational change management with a much more, I would say, uh, pronounced <coughs> benefit. Managers have to understand how every member of their team uh, can contribute to the bottom line. Otherwise, they're not managing. They have to report on this, performance reports and, and all of that good stuff that we do, it all goes to this. But if I'm managing a resource that I don't understand as an individual, then I'm managing according to what I feel you should do or you should say or what you should do. But what if I took the time to really understand you and what it is that makes you different and unique and how can that be leveraged to help benefit the team? So inclusion forces you to get to know one another and more importantly, to really get to know yourself. And everyone wants a high performer. I've spoken at this conference in the past about how to develop a high performance talent in an organization. High performance talent are really self-starters. They're the individuals that you think about first whenever you have a problem. As a leader, high performance talent is the one that requires very little instruction, never micromanagement. They're macro. They connect to a vision and they give you all the docs. They take a strategy, they create a tactical plan of how to get it done. And people who have you know, exhibited this type of behavior, they always move up. And when they don't move up, the entire organization suffers. You do not benefit by suppressing your high performance talent. You cannot be successful as an organization if you do not develop high performance talent. It's what differentiates one organization from another. So we like to look at you know, technology or products and services when we compare organizations. But if you think about how that product or service was created, how it was deployed, it always goes back to how are they developing their talent in order to effectively compete in the marketplace or deliver on their stated objectives. So I want to transition fully into, uh, into uh, inclusion. As I said earlier, when we measure the presence of a dem demographic group, that's diversity. That's a metric. It's a key performance indicator. But it doesn't provide the insight on the effectiveness of the inclusion program. In other words, don't assume that your high KPI for diversity automatically transforms into a high key performance indicator of your inclusion program. They have to be measured and managed separately. So at the last bullet, I would like to focus you there. We need methods to monitor and measure inclusion as a continuous delivery of insights. This is the problem. A lot of these measurements are spot checks, surveys at best. You do them quarterly or you may do them half once or twice a year. There's a lot happening in between that time. And all of that gets lost or it has to be regurgitated, but the accuracy of that is subject to risk. So we don't have a way to have a pulse indicator that is almost real time. We're not in a position to really effectively drive. I think they were looking for me. I had some guests coming. He just popped in and just walked away. Sorry. If we don't have a way of continuously monitoring the pulse, then we are, all we're doing is taking a spot in time and saying, that's great, that's wonderful, but it really doesn't give us a lot of insight. Because, yes? I'm gonna go into this more, but that's one of the things that, so I work at an organization that had a employee resource group, but they dictated what 
now that they've been sober. But one of the issues is they're trying to figure out how to evaluate the effectiveness. Yes. And that's been a big, big challenge. Yes. And we are going to get into that. Thank you for sharing that. That is definitely one of the focus areas. So before you can begin to implement any program in inclusion, my humble professional recommendation is that you talk about trust. Because without trust, you're not going to get authenticity and transparency. So whenever I talk about building out any sort of diverse or inclusion program, I always want to know what is the pulse and what is the level of trust of every member of that organization to the organization, to their management, to their peers, because that trust model, yes. And, and I like that because you guys are, are taking me into a trust conversation that is really interesting because I know a lot of individuals who believe trust trumps talent as far as raw talent. And I do prescribe to that, but I also understand that I can get too comfortable in trying to find people who think like me, look like me, act like me, because that's what I trust. Why? Because I see myself in them. So therefore, they must be good. So building trust is really challenging. And we have to come to the conclusion that trust, if you can establish a strategy to build trust in your inclusion program, your success potential and probability goes up by at least 60 to 70%. But most people focus on collecting the data, trying to figure out the demographics, trying to implement the program, and never discuss trust. You will be shocked when I meet with executives and I said, what is, the, uh, what is the trust level of the organization? They're like, oh, no, we don't ask those questions. <laughs> In fact, we don't want to know. We assume it's up there. <laughs> the last thing we're going to do is actually put ourselves, you know, and I'm going to show you a slide where it all comes together and why this. I'm coming back to the slide multiple times because I've learned as, as a leader myself, and I've been leading teams for 30 years, I always establish trust first. I didn't care what the diversity was because my thing was I was diverse by nature because I needed talent and I didn't care where it came from. But what I really absolutely needed was trust because once I hand off, I don't micromanage. I'm too busy. If I hand it off, my expectation is that one, you're going to call me if you need some guidance. Number two, you're going to get it done because you didn't call me. What I can't have is when I come back 
and the person says, well, you know, I got stuck. Why did you get stuck? Well, you know, I didn't understand this. Why didn't you reach out? Well, I didn't know if you would take that as a weakness, having me reach out. Yes, you put it out there, Jeb, but I have to trust that I don't get dinged or zinged on the back end because I've seen it happen amongst my colleagues. You know, they put on a good face. You're wonderful. Yes, that's exactly what we want. They leave the room. It's like, if I have to explain this one more time, I think I'm just going to jump off the window, jump out the window. So you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. As a leader, you really have to commit to a trust model around your inclusion. Diversity doesn't need as much trust. Why? Because that's bringing a person through the door. You need to trust your sources of where you're hiring. But when it comes to inclusion, it's 100% trust-based. And without establishing an effective way to build trust, and I usually use three primary pillars. How can I maintain confidentiality beyond just a one-to-one -one HR meeting or a management meeting? How can I get the voice of everyone in the workforce and have them trust how we're collecting that voice so that it's transparent and authentic? Because if we can get that to that level of confidentiality, we're already there. Transparency reinforces the confidentiality. It says, I'm not going to use this data for executive management only. I talk about this all the time. You can't have this data hidden in the pocket of exec executive management and expect an employee to fill it out and never see the results. They never never get a feedback loop in place. You want all this information from me. You want to know how I feel. You want to understand what I'm experiencing. And I have no idea where that data is going, how it's going to affect my career, and how it's going to ultimately impact the organization. Why? Because I don't have a feedback loop in place. I'm collecting, but the information goes in one way, stays there, and then I go and collect again. And by the time you collect the third time, people are now filling out that form and they're just giving whatever they think you want to say. Why? Because there's no trust. Action-oriented. When, when employees take a risk or a chance, and I call it a risk or a chance because I'm talking from the employee perspective, looking up to management, looking across the peers. When they take the opportunity to build out a transparent exercise in sharing, they're sharing, you're collecting. If you don't come back with, this is what you told us, and here is our action plan to address it, then the feedback loop, again, is broken. Because I find that when I share results, and I do it, you know, I, I, I remove all of the personal information. You know, I'm, I'm sharing sentiments, and I'm sharing, you know, different data points, but I'm not pointing to an individual. I'm talking about the overall organization. But what I have to do is say, look, the majority of you all said this. Here's our action plan to address that. And we're coming back for our report card so that we can understand how effective we have been in addressing not just concerns, but opportunities. Because this is not a negative. I can't tell you how many times I've solved a major problem because someone took a chance because they trusted me. And they didn't know if it was a good idea or not. It happened to be a brilliant idea. But I'll never forget the countless times I was talking to someone and they were still very nervous. They were taking a chance. 
And if I don't recognize that as, as, a, as an executive or as a leader or as a manager, I'm missing the fact that I need to work on their comfort level first. Then I really need to make them comfortable because when you're comfortable, you start to innovate. You can really think. When you're in a tight pressure situation, you can still innovate and think, but I have to tell you, it's not the same. You're not getting the same level of, uh, of, of talent coming out of that process. It's not a spot check, absolutely. And, and that's what I want to talk about, how to do it continuously. And we do need technology for that, but I refuse to talk about technology until we talk about the business side of it. Because the tech is the tech. It's a tool. Yeah, I'm a technologist. I shouldn't talk down tech, but I do all the time. Why? Because the answer is in the business layer. Technology, I don't care if I use a wrench or a screwdriver. Bottom line is, once I have all these materials, it's my intellect that allows me to understand the difference between the flathead and the Phillips. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to mess up the tools. <laughs> and I'll never get it done. So understanding how to build that as, as an effective uh, strategy for the organization is really important. There's a challenge in measuring inclusion. I mean, let's just be real. This is very, very difficult. I will not tell you that there's a magic wand and it's going to be waved and we're all going to have the answer uh, when you leave. What we will have is a foundation to go into a deeper uh, 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 discovery of that answer. So in my professional opinion, I've, I've uh, come to the conclusion that inclusion <laughs> is a challenge. And in order to really get there, you do have to use advanced technology. You do have to deploy advanced technology. What do I mean by advanced technology? I'm talking about machine learning, artificial intelligence. Technology that can measure not just quantifiable, you know, point of presences, but can measure emotional sentiment, can measure likability to their job, that can measure all of the human emotions that really drive our productivity. If we can get to that level of measurement, then your program and your answer in the feedback loop starts to become really interesting. You stumble the first time out the door, you get the results back, you start to build the trust, you continuously push that, and in, a, and in that effort of, of being consistent, you start to realize that people are starting to buy in. The other thing is this, direct and indirect feedback. I rarely see indirect feedback in any DNI program. I see direct feedback. Direct feedback is a survey, a spot check. You push it out, it's filled in, you get the results. A lot of people stop there. They're, oh, this is wonderful. Indirect feedback is when you get it unsolicited. When you open up the opportunity for someone to talk to the organization without having to wait for the survey to be administered. That's the near real time continuous inclusion assessment. Indirect, in my, in my professional experience, is much more powerful than direct. You need them both, but they are weighted differently in my world. Indirect is really more transparent, and it, it speaks to the bottom line of what a person is experiencing, what they're thinking, what they are desiring, and what they're trying to accomplish. Direct feedback sometimes goes along the politically correct sort of lane. What do they want to see? I'll tell them what they want to hear. But when a person takes the time to give you indirect feedback, they're trying to talk to you. They are trying to reach out, which is why I weight that way more than I do direct. We need them both. I'm not downplaying direct. I'm just saying more attention should be put on indirect. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what indirect feedback looks like. So trust me to not forget that. 
if you're trying to serve a minority group, and when I say minority, I'm not talking about blacks or whites. I'm saying a minority group, a smaller demographic. It could be gender-based, age-based, I don't care. It's a minority group. When you're trying to service that minority group and they're not in a place or a position to actually help you to understand how to service them, then you could miss the bullseye every time. You could have the best intent. So if you're trying to serve a diverse group, some of that diversity should be on the planning committees and the working groups to help understand how to best build out the message. Because without that, you still have oil and water. You can shake the glass, and we do it all the time in corporate America. When I say shake the glass, I'm saying when you put water and oil in the same glass, close the lid, they separate. So a lot of times we shake the glass. And look, we're all together. And I'm like, put the glass on the table. Whoop. That's what I'm looking at. When we're busy running, when a project has to be done, we're shaking the glass. When you got to get a deliverable, but you can't stand the person you're working with, or you don't trust the manager, you're still working. You're still going to get it done. You're shaking the glass. But when that project is over, and now you're doing you know, your, your performance reviews, boop, glass stops shaking. And if that person doesn't understand your value, it's oil and water again. Oil and water represents the level of communication and continuity between peers and management. If I had time, I would have actually built out a shake in the glass thing, but uh, I was talking to a lot of people this morning and uh, I couldn't get it done in time. <laughs> so you got to make sure that you're not shaking the glass and showing how everyone's working together because everyone's focused on something and the moment that that's done, they should be able to see exactly what they did in the performance review. Yes. Question um, related to bullet number three. You, you say that minority groups should have input in influencing inclusion programs. I agree. But I also wanted to hear what your thoughts are on majority members and how they should be engaged or how in, or included in building an inclusion program. Because a lot of yes. hearing at my company is a lot of like males don't feel the conversation, they, you know, they have huge impact on inclusion. Yes. And so how, what is your take on that? So one of the reasons why I said inclusion is good for the entire organization is for that reason. And remember, I said earlier that inclusion programs include everyone, not just the demographic you're targeting. You should target the entire workforce as a single demographic, single voice. So their input is just as important. Why? Because I have two routes to go when I'm dealing with someone who's in the majority. I either push an olive branch across the table and say, if you join this, you can help us understand when it starts to hurt you. It could be perceived or it could be measurable. In other words, sometimes we can go too far in one direction and we swing the pendulum and now we have a whole new set of problems. So they have to be there. Why? We want to balance the scale. Or you punish those who push back. And I'm just not of that school. If someone pushes back, I want to hear exactly why. That's important data for me. I need, I need that insight. They may have or, or they may not have legitimate reasons for pushing back. I don't care about the legitimacy of their pushback. There is something that's driving the pushback. If I can get to that source, then I am in a better position to address that concern or that need. But as long as I'm punishment, punishing them, then you're just going to get the withdrawal which means 
it'll seep up through the cracks in a certain way, in a different way. And now you're, you're trying to find a mouse instead of trying to uh, clean the house. <laughs> you're listening to Inclusion in Diversity and Inclusion, Inclusive Enhancement by Digital Transformation, featuring Jem Pagan. Brought to you by the Women of Color STEM Conference, uniting women in STEM by continuing the press for progress. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes. Call perspectives, and it's for the LGBTQ you know, community, but they actually have ally events, right, or ally nights, where they invite people to come in and have discussions. So I was just thinking about that when you made that point, like sometimes you do have to extend the olive branch to, to kind of get that. Yes, very, very, very important. And we're all familiar with allyism. That's the new term. We got to give the uh, millennials credit. They came up with it. They did. Allyism is a really fundamentally uh, good strategy. And it basically says, instead of us bickering, I'll come and learn about you. You come and learn about me. I've seen it done with food, which I always enjoy, because those, those diverse dishes. I mean, when we had the ally events, it wasn't just a simple potluck. It was like we wanted people to talk about the, the ethnic and cultural influence on how they make food. And it was super exciting because it just broke barriers. And it was hilarious because we had a hot sauce contest, uh, which I won, but I lost later. <laughs> I was the leader. I had to take the hottest uh, <laughs> sauce. And my God, it, it, it burned me. Uh, it, yeah, it burned good. And I love spicy food, but we all had that look. We were all laughing. And then we started talking about, well, how can we get this done together? I've seen it done uh, around different holidays. I've seen it done uh, just around, like you said, meetup, no agenda. Let's just uh, have fun and games. But it does work. Because if you think about how you form relationships outside of work, it was always people to people before it was group to group. It was always people to people before it was people to group. So if you get people to people working and you got a diverse team that's starting to learn and, and interact, you get what? More trust. The trust strategy is super important. Allyism is built on the trust model. So I, I fully, fully uh, appreciate that. By the way, in the attribution, uh, the, uh, the Deloitte research uh, that I uh, cited, the link for that download report, is in there, and that's what they uh, talk about from the very beginning. It's an allyism strategy for inclusion, and I encourage you to read it. It's it's, uh, it's really good. So, I always say, if you're going to measure inclusion, you got to go down to the individual. But we can't just measure our workforce. We have to create a way for our employees to measure themselves. Anyone familiar with Mint.com? It's a, it's a, it's a, a banking program, but what I like about Mint.com has nothing to do with banking. They give you these personal analytics and, and statistics. They look at your medium, your earning potential, and they say, compared to the rest of, the, of your group, this is how you're spending. This is what you're spending on. This is what they're spending on. And it became really interesting because I said, oh, wow, I'm measuring myself now based on what my peers are doing. And I'm realizing that I want to know why they're doing that, because they're doing some things a lot better than me. And then they went into 
these peer-to-peer -peer coaching sessions where they invited people to share how they're budgeting, to share how they're spending, so that you not only saw the stats, but you also know how and why they're doing it. And I said, wow, this is self-assessment now. I'm not going to a class, I'm not going to a seminar. This one app, based on these analytics and this dashboard, has opened up my brain to want to discover more of me through the eyes of others and what they're doing. If you're gonna have a successful inclusion program, in my opinion, you have to have a self-assessment instrument. This is not an instrument that allows the organization to assess you. It allows you to assess yourself and build out the confidentiality so that you can do it in a way that builds your, uh, your perspective around inclusion, but also helps you to, to baseline who you are. As much as we say, you don't know me, I, no one can know me better than myself, I have to say, I've lived my life through, the, through, through family and friends, and they know a lot more about me than I know about myself. <laughs> As my mother used to say, come here and let me tell you about yourself, son. And she was so accurate. But I disagreed the entire time. I argued. But I was like, how does she know this? I was, uh, I think I was 28. And I called my mother one day because it was just really, I was always curious about this one thing. I said, hey, as a kid, you know I was really bad. And, and I used to lie because I knew I was going to get a, you know, a beating, as we used to say. We didn't get spankings. And I said, but you always knew. How did you know? And she said, boy, you were so simple. You weren't complex. I said, what are you talking about? I don't know how you knew. And I'm supposed to know myself. And she said, well, whenever you did something wrong and someone accused you of doing it wrong, you were very humble. You wanted to put on like the baby face and you wanted to, you know, just make them feel super guilty about punishing you. But when you were right and someone accused you of being wrong, you lost your mind. So everyone's thinking that you were lying when you were telling the truth because you had the exact opposite emotional response. And I said, why was that? She said, because you were so bad, you wanted credit when you were good. <laughs> your good was very low. Your bad was very high. So whenever you decided to do something good, you were like, uh-uh, wait, we will fight. I actually did the right thing. And I said, wow, <laughs> she was right. But now I'm self-assessing myself through her eyes. And it's so important. It's so important, motivating. So once you start to build out a mechanism for people and your employees in uh, your workforce to assess themselves, number one, that goes on the HR column. That should be highly confidential. Number two, it really becomes a, a motivator for improvement. And it's really interesting. Because we have a challenge in the workforce like no other, other area of our society. I always say Sunday is still the most segregated day in America. <laughs> Why? Because everyone goes to where they want to be. Don't tell me I need to talk to such and such. Don't tell me I need to sit next to such. I am doing my thing. And then you come into the workforce and you are forced, whether you have a deep religious belief about this you are forced to treat this person with the same respect as those that you actually connect with. Very difficult. That's the inclusion challenge. How do you get people to let go of their religious beliefs, their personal beliefs, their traditional ethnic beliefs, their cultural beliefs, and come into an organization where the culture is really being communicated and managed to all include it? Because we need everyone to get it done. And if you notice, the pushback is always, if I go into this sort of culture, will I lose my culture on the other side? So I'll do what they say, play the game to get through the day. 
But inclusion starts to open up questions about, are you really settled? Do you really know it all? Do you have all the answers? And if you don't, then why not? Talk and research and discover. Now I have to get into something that's a little controversial, uh, but it's out there. And it's, it's there. Some of you may, anyone recognizes this model? This is an executive model for talent assessment. So whatever you're going through with your, your, uh, you know, your performance improvement and your, your, all your individual plans, there are individuals who come together and this is how they decide who moves up in the organization and who moves on. The problem is that there is no inclusion in this. But it's one of the most effective models in corporate America, especially in the larger corporations. They call it the nine box model. This is just a snapshot of it. <clears throat> I have a reference to, and I will show you a quote from one of the Fortune 500 executives who, who participated in this, and he wrote a very interesting article. And the link is uh, in the presentation as far as his personal experience with this. But the nine box model is really supposed to allow you to identify the high potential, high performance employees. So it has good intention. It's Implementation is one where it's sequestered to only a few need to knows in the organization. Number one, it's hidden, it's non-transparent. So then trust goes out the window. Number two, it really is subjective to the degree of almost 100%. How do I feel about this employee is what this model is bringing out. Not what they did or what they didn't do, but how do I perceive them? This is a perception model. Why is that bad? If I have biases, this is where I get to justify those. This is where I get to say, I'm not wrong. See, we did the assessment. You gave it to me. This person is not a high performer. Why? Well, you know, I asked them to uh, go out for beer, and they said they don't drink. Hmm. Nah. Lack of will. Capped out unable to perform as needed. Why? Because our client was going there and everyone was expected to drink until the client stopped drinking. So therefore, I know this person can't move up the ladder because we're going to do this more. Now, is that a fact? Of course it's a fact. I was told that. At a major corporation I worked at, they said the drinking stops when the client stops. You drink to make sure the client feels comfortable. Well, what if I don't drink? Then, you, then, then order a club soda with a lime and make it look like vodka. <laughs> I was told that played a role, but what if I want to never be perceived as a person who drinks alcohol? Hmm. Unable to perform. <laughs> and you'll never know it. You'll never know it. This doesn't, this, there's no feedback loop to this. This stays in a certain place. But there is a way to address that. So Deloitte, again, Going back to that survey, now we're looking at the different groups. It's a very interesting trend that's, that's occurring. LGBT, number one. Disabilities always has been up there. And then you have the different ethnic groups and then your different uh, backgrounds. And those are really high numbers really, really high numbers. Going deeper into the survey, 
bias perceived based on race and, race and ethnicity. And they do this across all of the uh, previous demographics. I just didn't want to copy and paste, you know, 15 of these. But it's the, in there in the report if you want to see it. Again, looking at what's happening here is really interesting. What's, in, what's interesting about this to me, I've never heard the Asian voice. I've never heard the Asian voice. In fact, they weren't even included in these types of surveys years gone by because they were considered a very passive group by culture and very appreciative to just be there for the opportunity. They come from a culture of non-pushback. So I'm excited about the fact that the Asian voice is now surfacing. It's coming to the forefront, and they're beginning to speak out about what they're experiencing. I work with different cultures across the globe, and I have to study the culture because I need to understand how to build out the teams and the performance. And I remember early on when I was uh, doing an offshore development project, and I got on the phone and I said, hey, we need this done. They said, do you understand? We got it, we got it, we got it, we got it. Next day, nothing came in. And I said, what's the problem? They said, well, you know, culturally, they don't like to say no. So they'll say yes as a way of passively trying to move away from an uncomfortable position. Your culture accepts yes as yes and no as no. Their culture accepts yes as no, yes or maybe, which means keep talking. Make me comfortable enough to be transparent. If I didn't have that skill set, so I, I was like livid, saying I got to get this done, completely insensitive to their culture until someone pulled me aside and said, mm, you're not going to change a culture. <laughs> But what you can do is understand how to take that culture and move it into a place where they trust you more so that you can get more authenticity and transparency out of them. So the ownership was on me to build out the right management technique, not enforcing someone to completely change because there was no trust. I didn't establish a trust first. That was my failure. This is the executive that talked about the, uh, the nine-point uh, model. That's not someone who was a recipient of this, this is a person who was actually going through this assessment and bringing candidates into the assessment. And this was not a minority who chaired this. Very interesting. I love the second bullet because that's where I'm about to go with you guys. The process would be one of metrics review. If we really were trying to find the best talent, we would focus on the numbers, the metrics, and we would build out a way to measure and monitor those metrics so that they're altruistic and they're trustable. Why? Because we bring confidentiality, trust, and transparency to the process. Now you have an inclusion program. Now you have the ability to start to really impact positive change if you're willing to build out the metrics. This is why I made the reference to advanced technology. You do need it. It's a tool. It is not the solution. The solution is on the business side. It's on the people side. The tool is there to help. If I want to get from here back to the hotel, I could walk. I just don't want to. My feet hurt. So I need a tool. We call it a vehicle. The only good that vehicle has for me is it gets me from point A to point B. I'm coming right to you. But if I need it to do it, I have multiple ways to do it. I can rent a scooter and just, you know, do my thing. I could hop on the people mover. I could order Uber. Look at all these ways I can affect getting from point A to point B. So that's the tool part. You need it, but
but I don't like to put a lot of focus on it because if you don't have the trust model, who cares about the tool? If you don't build, yes. I think it's a question. So I've been reading some feedback on uh, automating processes that you did, um, leaning more on those kinds of automated systems for HR processes, where uh, and some feedback on some on, on that piece has been that because humans build the systems, oftentimes biases are also built into them, and then kind of. Uh, could and we have demonstrated that it has not across the board and I'll give you a couple examples of yes I am going to talk about that but I think it's a good transition into what I'm about to show you so uh, what she was referring to is the math behind the algorithm in my world we have to put the algorithm in front of our clients they never accept our math they don't accept our AI or our bots or any of our machine learning without exposing the actual math to them because you don't trust anyone's algorithm just because it puts out pretty pictures and pretty dashboards i agree with you recently a major corporation uh, had to pull back their ai driven automated hiring because it was built into the uh, process to exclude women so someone built the math to identify and then to disqualify females and that's just one who knows how many else were disqualified. Why? They never looked at the algorithm. They never had an algorithmic mathematical assessment. If you go to a financial services institution and you say, hey, I have a, a new AI bot that's going to do this and the other, they're like, okay, great. Where's the math? And if the company says, oh, no, no, that's our intellectual property. We're not sharing that. Okay, boom, go. You won't be selling to us. <laughs> we're, not taking, we're not taking this nice, pretty box and implementing this nice software without understanding exactly what you're calculating. And then we build a test criteria. We call it test data. Because if your math is correct, I already know what the results should be in the data set I'm feeding you. So now I have to make sure that the process of adopting this type of technology, which is a, another seminar that I could talk about, is one that allows you to build more assurance and trust in the actual uh, technology when it's when it's said and done but i i will tell you that yes trust no algorithm there is uh there's an awesome uh uh author and a and a, and a good friend kathy o'neill she she wrote the book weapons of math destruction m-a-t-h kathy o'neill did a study and it was a very interesting study and just to give you a high level she took uh four demographics white male white female black male black female same school, same background, same income, same neighborhood. All the other demographics matched except for gender and ethnicity. Those are only variables. She went to a peer-to-peer -peer lending site, pushed out their information, all the same information, same financials, same education, and the white male consistently got the best rate on the quote. The white female got the second best rate, the black man, uh, black male got the uh, third, and the black female got the fourth and the last. 
was based on nothing but ethnic, then the entire algorithm was based on ethnicity to determine. Why was that being done? Because in years ago, the practice was that you can always put higher points on minorities because they're just happy to get the opportunity to uh, actually buy. Whereas those who culturally have been used to buying are always looking for a bargain. It's, it's, it's just a bias that was built into the math. So yes, but you, you can and you should always require someone to demonstrate their algorithm to you and to expose the math behind the algorithm to you. And then fundamentally, when we talk about talent review process, and there are studies on this too in a lot of conversations um, around just when we're looking at who we deem executives, it's built on a model of whether we use the tool or not, a model of, you know, the white male, right? So oftentimes, I've seen a lot of studies on this too, you know, at black women and being perceived as having the executive presence or that presence to be promoted, um, you know, looking at our talent programs, it, there's a mixed match. So there's fundamentally just how we're looking at those programs. I'm sure that's another conversation, but if you have any insight or other resources or materials and kind of... Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's going to be, in my opinion, that's going to be an evolution, <laughs> not a revolution. I say that because I, when I was in uh, graduate school, uh, I was assigned the uh, professional, uh, we had to do a presentation on workplace professional uh, um, acceptance. It was all about management, it had nothing to do, you know, it was all about how, how to make sure you're perceived as a high performance executive. So I had studied a female and, you know, it was kind of weird because I'm like, you know, I get the male side, but it became very insightful. Uh, there was a book, and I, I can't remember the name of it, that uh, I was assigned to, uh, to use as my research. And it was mind-blowing to me because the book for the men was a pamphlet. <laughs> for the women, it was pretty thick. <laughs> and they went through all of these exhaustive, reduce your colors. Don't ever wear anything feminine like, uh, you know, the uh, brooch or, you know. And if you want to be perceived, you know, you must always make sure that if you're wearing a, a business suit, that it's navy blue. So what they were doing is exactly what you said. They were trying to, they were trying to do in very good faith, help females to understand the biasness and to use that to their advantage by conforming to the perception of an executive as opposed to. Now what I see with the millennial age is the, the entire dismemberment of that. When I say dismemberment, I'm not talking about like pushback, like dismemberment like complete dismemberment to the point that they have almost destroyed it. Now that generation is about to become the, the largest generation in America. They arguably could be there now, but they will influence everything we do going forward in the next 10 years. And when you look at the millennials, and I know a lot of the older generation knocks the millennials, I mean, yeah, the uh, millennials, but I don't because they looked at us. They reacted to what we did. So I need to understand that they are a mirror of reflection to society. And when they start to push back and say, I mean, think about it. Back in the day, there was no LGBTQI. It was just one category. How in the world could we ever understand a community if we lump in all of this diversity into one category? So they really started to drive this. Allyism, another millennial driven. So I'm seeing a lot of change. I don't think that over the next 10 years, that will even be an issue because you're seeing a transition now that's actually accelerating. 
Yes. similar yes and and I agree with both statements and and I definitely appreciate uh, what what the millennials are saying I always go back to uh, a story in time when I when I have this sort of feedback because I've been attending this conference for 15 plus years and in the very beginning I have to tell you uh, without this conference you would not have seen the diversity initiative permeating into the organizations sometimes Millennials will think about what does this mean to me as opposed to what does this mean to a movement that needs this as a catalyst and a program and a platform to bring it back to the internal. And then when you look at, and we've been talking about tracing the, the awardees over, over the years, and when we got back just some of the basic uh, demographics, the increase in authority, opportunity, um, earning has come out of this conference in a way that's just absolutely mind-blowing. So those who work the conference with a need to and desire to build cultural uh, diversity, to build a network of diverse individuals, they win here. Others who come here to sort of watch the show, yes, they make, they make, I always say you get out what you put in. And I encourage millennials to come and have a session on that here. Bring that voice here. It would be a wonderful conversation. I don't think it would be a debate. I think it would be a fantastic conversation to have what you're discussing as a seminar, as a workshop, because it's very important. And I think somewhere in the middle, both sides will agree. And that middle, that balanced sort of a scorecard, because if you abolish this, trust me on this one, you will see a reverse in action. Because without this, you don't have a light on, on the hill that says, we are doing something and we're measuring the impact and we're doing it across the entire market. Profit, nonprofit, government, for-profit, enterprise, higher ed. It's the most diverse conference from a professional standpoint. So I, when I look at diversity, the end result, the most demanding and valuable metric is diversity of thought. If I'm not getting diversity of thought out of my diversity initiative, to me it's a failure. If I'm not getting diversity of thought out of my inclusion, it is a failure. We are doing this because we got to look at these problems and opportunities from multiple lenses, from different perspectives. And when we do that, we find out that no one individual has the answer, but collectively, we can do some really exciting things. So I hear what they're saying, but I think it's, it's one that we should continue to discuss, not conclude. That's the trust model. That's the comparison. This is what it looks like today. This is where I believe we have to go. This is just a snapshot of what we call continuous. If you look at the time graph, it's really continuous. Every day, 24 by seven, a platform is in place to capture and understand the sentiment 
of the organization. And this is just one snapshot of how we can begin to use artificial intelligence and, and, and bots to really drive effectiveness. The next layer that I really enjoy is that you get to formulate your own questions. So you make this about the organization. It's not like this generic across the board assessment. It's an assessment that actually is pertinent to the actual individual. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're working on a particular team, if you're on a data science team, or if you're on a, a business analyst team, your questions are gonna be geared around what you're doing every day, how you're experiencing that every day, as opposed to your push down a sort of a analysis. So this is a snapshot from a company I work with when, uh, when we're, we're trying to push the next generation of measurement in diversity and inclusion. The bot is really just that, it's a bot. It's not designed to make any assessments. It's designed to coach and to talk to and to collect. It's not the bot that actually says you're right or you're wrong. It just says you now can have a conversation with what I call a virtual HR representative because that's really what it is. It's HR now extending its, its reach into the entire workforce not just receiving management level feedback, but going directly to the individual. Why is this important? If you look at digital transformation, the one thing we're doing with digital transformation is that we're flattening the organizations for the first time. The voice of the person over here in the corner that does this one thing now can reach the highest level in the organization through effective HR technology, as opposed to having to convince your manager or your supervisor to take your idea forward and hope that they don't make it their own and then eventually, you know, it's heard. Now you get to flatten the organization and everyone gets to converge on a platform that allows them a confidentiality to share their feedback. Very powerful when you start, yes. It's on the computer that works. Yeah, it's administered uh, to the mobile device or to a, to a, to a laptop. And when you look at the power of HR to touch every individual. Now, when I worked for you know, the bigger corporations where we had 200,000 employees, I never saw HR. I couldn't. I mean, look, the ratio alone, you can't hire enough HR individuals to service the workforce at the intimate level that they need. It's just insurmountable. So technology has to be leveraged in order to fill the gap, to close the gap, which is why I said, Confidentiality, transparency, and action-oriented responses are the foundation for trust. Because when people start to trust this, you start to get the truth. And it becomes really interesting because now HR is a strategic partner to every business unit, not the cop, not the person that gets you out of trouble or gets you out of hock when the, when the damage is already done, not the retroactive group. Because a lot of what HR does is retroactive, it's response because they're not in a position to see it coming. They don't have the insight. But when you strategically tie human resources, diversity and inclusion to the bottom line strategy of the organization and you can measure workforce effectiveness, workforce productivity, workforce engagement, those are the most important metrics in the entire company. The only other metric that beats all of those is revenue. So if I tie workforce productivity, 
workforce efficiency, workforce readiness to revenue, it's very difficult to push back on diversity and inclusion because now people are feeling like they're getting the most value out of their human capital investment. And it's really important to start to look at it strategically and then start to understand that flattening that organization, getting the voice of everyone in a trusted, confidential way, which is why I always say this has to be administered by HR, not by inline managers. HR has to own this. This is their authoritative source. This is their source of record. This is an HR only implementation. It's done in conjunction with the business units, but HR has to own the data. And the interesting thing about this survey, you don't expose the employees. They create an avatar and a handle, similar to your handle uh, when you play Wars with Friends or uh, you create that handle. So even your inline managers aren't seeing who you are. Why? Because you gotta have the trust. Without that trust, people don't really come forward. So imagine you taking the same gamification that we enjoy every day in social media and all of our online games, and you're bringing that into the workforce, so you're taking care of the confidentiality, and now you're allowing a person to really see where they fit with their peers. Just like Mint.com, I'm beginning to say, oh, wait, 60% of the organization is actually open to you know, diversity, and they really don't really feel like it's taking their, their opportunity away because of these reasons. Now we know what to focus on. Or 60% are saying, we don't like this because we don't know what this means to us. Now I know what to focus on. What does it mean to you as someone who is not in a diversity pool? But no matter if it comes back positive or negative, I can address it. It's the unknown. It's trying to answer a question that has not been asked. That's the most difficult for most HR uh, professionals and leaders. So in summary, there's got to be a way to strategically flatten the organization. Otherwise, you can't capture the voice. If you can't capture the voice of your workforce, you can't monitor and measure its effectiveness. And if you can't measure the effectiveness, you can't tie that to strategic initiatives. I encourage all HR uh, leaders to model their HR initiatives, especially diversity inclusion, around digital transformation. Why? That's where the focus is. That's where the funding is. That's where the research is. That's where the investment is going. So why stay over here and stay traditional when you can move into a digital transformation for digital, for diversity and inclusion? That's very hard to argue against because that data becomes so valuable. And it's in the moment data. And then historically, you can start to see all sorts of things. We had a use case where an organization had a sudden drop in productivity and no one in management knew. They brought this in, they pushed it out, and they found out that it was one change in a policy that had everybody confused. And they said, oh my God, we thought we did a great job of messaging. They turned around that message, got it out there, said we heard you, action-oriented, productivity went up. That was measurable productivity. They thought it was something else. They were so off on the reservation that this tool actually allowed them to understand what was beating at and, and, and basically disrupting the, the productivity of their workforce across the board. This wasn't a diversity inclusion use case. It was an entire workforce use case. That's powerful. But it also means that HR has to turn around and start to really look at strategy and how to move into digital transformation as an initiative so that diversity inclusion becomes a quantifiably measurable, not just a qualitative assessment. Right now, it's 99% qualitative. But very little 
quantitative data outside of surveys and, and uh, you know, different demographics. That's all for me. I think we're out of time anyway. Uh, I think you're going to get a survey. And, if, you know, if you want to be kind, that's great. <laughs> Sing my praise. I, I don't, you know, I, I won't uh, be upset with you. But thank you for sitting through this, and thank you for the uh, fantastic feedback. Love the uh, feedback. Love the questions. Love the uh, comments. And thank you for having me. You guys enjoy the conference. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inclusion in Diversity and Inclusion, Inclusive Enhancement by Digital Transformation, a professional development seminar featuring CEO of Blue Sky Consulting, Jem Pagan. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Women of Color STEM Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.womenofcolor.net. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.